your great name. Amen. Well, today we are starting the first of three Christmas messages, and the hope is that this will help us prepare our hearts to truly worship the Lord Jesus this holiday season. One of the many reasons we need to prepare our hearts is that Christmas is incredibly popular and celebrated by so many in our culture and world that are totally disinterested in Christ and even sometimes hostile toward the Christian faith. Just one example of this, guess where the most expensive Christmas tree in the world was located just a couple of years ago? I have a picture of this tree for you. It's 43 feet tall and it costs around $15 million because of all the diamonds and and jewelry that's used uh, to decorate the tree. And just to provide a contrast, Rockefeller Center, that Christmas tree in New York City, it only cost a meager $73,000 in comparison. And so this is just, this is next level, okay? So where is it? Well, it's located in the capital of the United Arab Emirates. So in case you're not familiar, uh, that is not a bastion of Christianity. That's a Muslim nation. And this shouldn't really surprise us, though, because um, all religions, all cults, all of them, they believe in Jesus in some sense. All of them, all of them have claims about Jesus. And very, too, very few people in general take issue with the idea of Jesus in a manger. Jesus in a, in a manger feels safe. He feels approachable. To many people, there's sentimental feelings tied to that image. But the disagreements, they begin as soon as you start to define and describe who Jesus is. Who was in the manger that very first Christmas? See, Muslims believe Jesus was a sinless prophet. Buddhism says that Jesus was an enlightened one. Honest atheists have to admit he was a historical figure. Virtually all religions and cults, they make some claim about Jesus. And so the question for us this morning is who was in the manger? What does the Bible teach about Jesus's identity? See, if we get this wrong, then there really is nothing transcendent to celebrate or look forward to during Christmas. But if we get Jesus's identity right, what we'll discover is something far greater than just some sentimental feelings. We'll see that he's the source of eternal life. And the only one who can satisfy us 365 days out of the year. And so to answer our big question, we're going to spend most of our time on just one verse from our passage in Galatians. And that verse, it forms our outline. The baby in the manger was planned, divine, and human. So Jesus was planned, divine, and human. For our first point, look again at Galatians 4.4. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman. Now, what does it mean when it says, when the time came to completion? Have you ever thought about that before? Some translations, they'll say, when the fullness of time had come. I think there's a number of implications here. And the the first thing it highlights is Christ's centrality in history. Christ's centrality in history. History is full of the birth of many famous and important figures. You can think of Alexander the Great. You can think of Aristotle. Cleopatra, George Washington, and of course, you know, this time of year, you can't forget the, the massive historical figure and influence of Buddy the Elf, right? <laughs> in all seriousness, no, in all seriousness, no other person compares in significance to the life of Christ. He's not just another important historical figure. His birth is not just another important date. 
You see, the universe, it was created at least 4,000 years before Christ's birth, but the entire universe, it was created with this specific moment in mind. Everything before Christ's birth, it was leading up to that event. And everything afterwards has been impacted by it. This is captured well in a, a famous poem about Jesus. It says, He was born in an obscure village, a child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never had a family or owned a home. He never set foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never wrote a book or held an office. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. While he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends deserted him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had, his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is still the central figure for much of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. That's true. Jesus, he is the central and most influential figure in history. The Bible, the Bible points to this right from the beginning. The birth of Jesus, it was promised immediately after Adam and Eve fell into sin. So even before God corrected them, he already gave the precious promise in Genesis 3.15 that one of Eve's descendants would defeat Satan and win victory for the people of God. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies predicting the coming of a divine king who would save God's people and establish an eternal kingdom. Now, even more wild than these prophecies, which we'll talk more about in a minute, I think even more wild than that are the statements in the New Testament that God's plan to send his son, it was established before the creation of the world. First Peter 1.20 is one example. It says, For he, Jesus... And in context, it's talking about when Jesus shed his blood to redeem God's people. For he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But he's appeared in these last times for the sake of you. When it says he's appeared, it's referring to Jesus' birth. It's referring to his life. And so here's the point. God created the universe planning to send his son into it. God created the, the universe already with the plan to send his son into it. And so the birth of Christ, it was not a coincidence. It was not an accident. It wasn't some random event. The birth of Christ, it wasn't a backup plan for God or an audible. It was the intentional, eternal plan of the Godhead. It was determined before the world was created and it was deployed at the fullness of time. And one way you can think about this is like a, a movie that has a main character in it. Some movies don't, but there are other movies. There's a clear main figure in it. Think about Braveheart. That's one of my favorite movies. And that movie, it has many, many actors in it, many different roles, probably hundreds if not thousands with the battle scenes of people involved in it. And there are some really important characters, but it's obvious when you watch that movie. Who's, who's it about? Everything centers on the main character, Mel Gibson's character, William Wallace. And in the same way, that's what... That's what Jesus Christ is to human history. Of course, 
Each one of us is made in God's image and precious to God. Each one of us have our own stories, but our stories, they're really just subplots in the one story that God is weaving throughout all of history. See, the the Bible, it lays out God's plan for the universe. It's not a bunch of of random stories, random books. It, It gives us one, one united story about the creation of the world and the fall into sin, and redemption, how it can be restored, and consummation, where everything is headed, and who is the central character in the whole thing? It's Jesus Christ. Again, everything beforehand pointing to it, everything after changed by his life. And so the first thing we need to recognize is Jesus' centrality in history. Now, a second, second implication of the passage is that the fullness of time came when man's inability to save ourselves had been adequately demonstrated. This passage in Galatians, it refers to how the Mosaic law was added as a guardian or a tutor to prepare God's people for Christ. And this means that one of the main functions of the Old Testament law was to help prove that we are not righteous and that we can never make ourselves righteous before God based on our own efforts. If you've been joining us recently, that's what our study in Romans has been going in depth on. Paul, he works hard to prove that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the history of the world and all cultures before Christ, it it highlights that something is universally broken and disordered within humanity. And despite all of mankind's efforts, we've not been able to fix the root problem. Now, a third aspect of the fullness of time that many commentators and Bible teachers emphasize is Christianity's capacity to spread. It's interesting how many factors converged at the time of Christ to make the spread of the gospel to all the nations more realistic than at any point since the Tower of Babel. Now, there are a number of of factors, but I'll just give you a few. The first is that Rome had conquered much of the known world and had enforced the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, And so this brought relative stability and and much religious religious tolerance throughout their empire. Also, many of the places that were conquered, it shook their confidence, kind of the stronghold that their gods had because the gods weren't able to protect them against Rome. So there was an openness to the gospel that that brought about in many places. Also, the Romans built roads wherever they went and conquered, largely for military purposes. But these roads, they made travel safer and easier and faster for civilians as well. And so the roads that the Romans built for their kingdom, they actually served as roads for the gospel of God's kingdom to travel on. Third, the, the Greek language that was used throughout the Roman Empire, the trade language, it's a very precise language. And so, for example, different languages have different number of words in them. You can be more or less accurate in certain, certain languages. So my wife, she's from Indonesia. So their language, sometimes we'll talk and I'll be translating and I'll say just a short sentence and she'll pass it on to her family. And she has to say like two or three sentences. And sometimes I'll ask, and she's like, well, there's just not, there's not words to say that. So you have to just use more explanation sometimes to say the same thing. And so because of the, the shared trade language throughout the Roman Empire, The gospel could spread to many different groups of people, many different cultures, and it could spread in a language that was very accurate, very nuanced. Something I just learned recently is that Rome, it would recruit soldiers from the distant provinces that that it conquered. And so one of the ways the gospel spread is as, as these soldiers, 
They'd be in Rome. They'd be exposed to Christianity, and then they would go back to the places that they were from. So that's how the gospel spread to, to some places for the first time. One last thing to mention is just that the Romans also kept many historical records of their empire, which helps confirm the incredible historical accuracy of the Bible's many, many historical claims. Now, if you are here today and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. And one of the, the things I'd encourage you to do, if you're not sure if Christianity is true, you're not sure what you believe about the Bible, one of the things I'd encourage you to do is look into the historical reliability of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's an embarrassment of riches. There's such great, compelling historical evidence for Jesus' life, for his death and his resurrection. I think that, that Jesus' life and his impact in history, I think it can only be satisfactorily explained if Jesus really is who he claimed to be and really did what he claimed to do. Now, in our Welcome Center, we have the book More Than a Carpenter that was written by a skeptic who was, who was converted to Christianity as he looked into the historical reliability of the Bible. And so we give those out for free. And so if that's interesting to any of you, or if you have people that you think of, I'd, I'd love to get that into their hands. You're welcome to grab, grab one after the service or, or any week. Now, I should clarify here that the Bible it nowhere explicitly mentions the factors that I just listed in terms of you know, being involved in the fullness of time. So we don't know exactly you know, how big of an influence that was in God's timing, but we do know that they factored in at least to some degree. And that's because of the, the final observation to share with you, which is God's sovereignty overall. God's sovereignty overall. Ephesians 1.9 is one of the few places in the Bible that has that same expression that's used in Galatians. And there Paul says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. There it is again. And he goes on and he says, this plan was to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So all things in the universe ultimately work out according to the counsel of God's will. The Bible's clear that nothing happens in this world independent of God's sovereign plan for it. Now that doesn't violate true human agency and responsibility, but it does teach the mind-blowing reality that God is in control of history. Nothing from a sparrow falling to the ground a subatomic particle in some distant corner of the universe, nothing is outside of God's attention and ultimately God's control. And this, at times, it can baffle our minds, this reality, but it should always encourage our hearts because it means that God has the power to fulfill all of his good promises for us. If God wasn't sovereign, there'd be no confidence that he could, that he could actually fulfill what he promises us. For example, think about your own life. One of the reasons that people often get stressed out around Christmas is because they have all these plans, plans for how they, they hope Christmas will go, plans on finding the perfect gift, plans on having a great time with family and friends. And so there's all these plans that people can make. And do our plans ever go exactly the way that we want? <laughs> no, they never, they never go exactly the way that we want. And that's especially true the more and more kids you add <laughs> to the equation. I remember at our household, we celebrate uh, Christmas a little bit earlier uh, with my extended family, which we love to do, but we celebrate a little bit earlier than we normally get around as a family. And so what can happen on Christmas morning is getting up and trying to get kids going, trying to get them dressed, 
But, you know, so you get shoes on one, go to another, and they, for, they forget, take it off. You know, there's times where kids go to the bathroom and they miss the toilet. <laughs> there's all these things. And you're trying to juggle these, these factors. And it's like, it's hard for us to control our own little life. Like our, just our little world, it's impossible for us to completely control. And then you think, you zoom out, and you think, God, he rules this whole universe. An image in my mind, sometimes that's been helpful, is to think about a pond in a rainstorm, a heavy rainstorm. Every raindrop, there's ripples that come, right? And each ripple, then they bounce into the other ripples. They impact each other. They're playing off of each other. So there's trillions and trillions and trillions of these interactions going on. And God understands all of that, exactly what's going on, exactly how each raindrop impacts the others. And then you zoom out to our life. He understands all the ripples in your life. <laughs> he understands all of the ways your decisions impact other people and their decisions impact you. And you zoom out even further. And God, he understands all the ripples in the universe. Everything from the smallest subatomic particle to the big events in human history. He's in control. He's, he oversees it. He ultimately rules it and understands all of it. One of the clearest examples of this is prophecy. The whole Old Testament was filled with prophecies about Jesus' life, from where he'd be born to his ancestry, his virgin birth, people's reaction to him, that he'd be crucified and raised from the dead. These predictions were made hundreds and thousands of years before his birth. I mean, there are innumerable, countless factors all involved, and they all came, came about right as God planned, exactly how God had planned. Prophecies prove that Jesus' birth was planned by the sovereign creator of the universe. And they also prove that his life was the most important human life in all of human history. So the first point is that Jesus' life was planned. The second point that's even more incredible than this is that Jesus' nature was divine. Jesus' nature was divine. So who was the baby in the manger? The baby was God. The baby was God. The same God who spoke the universe into existence and sustains it. The same God who we just talked about is sovereign over every detail of human history. The same God who, who wrote all of the DNA for all living beings. He's the God who is in the manger. I was reminded of a fact I heard long, long ago. I, I looked it up this week. You know, one cell in your body, you can't even see it with your visible eyes. One cell in your body, if you unfolded the DNA in it, it would stretch six feet long. Now, if you put all the cells in your body together, that DNA, if you stretch it all out, put them in end to end, you only have around 37 trillion cells in your body on average. If you put those all together, the DNA in your body would stretch to the sun and back hundreds of times. <laughs> like just your body. And again, God, he, he's the one. He coded all of that. He wrote all of that. The sun is 93 million miles away. It's incredible. And this is the God that was in the manger. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son. God sent his son, born of a woman. God's son, he refers to the second person of the Trinity, who is co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1 is one of the most famous examples of this. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on, and he makes it even more clear. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
Now, some argue that God the Son was created by God the Father at the incarnation or some other point before the universe was made. But John, it, it's hard to see how he could be any more clear. He doesn't just say that Jesus is God. Then he goes on, he says, all things were made through him. And just to make sure we don't miss the point, and without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. So you see what he's saying? Anything that has been made in the universe, anything that exists, that began to exist, Jesus brought that into existence, which means that Jesus is uncreated and only God is uncreated. This obviously leads into the Trinity, talking about the Trinity. And this is so important because what all other religions and what all other cults do, they, they change who Jesus is. They all talk about Jesus, but they change Jesus' identity or they change his work. So the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're united in one divine nature. There's only one God. There's not three gods. And yet there are still three distinct persons. There's three distinct persons that in, inhabit the one divine nature. Often people will give illustrations to try and explain this. You've probably heard them. I've used some of them before. You've probably used some of them. You know, like water. Water can be liquid. It can be ice. It can be a vapor. There's all kinds of different illustrations where people try and, try and help explain the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is so unique. There really is only one adequate illustration for the Trinity. Are you ready for this? I'm going to show it to you. This is the one adequate illustration. Nothing. <laughs> there, there is no adequate explanation because there's nothing else in the universe that has a nature like God's. He's totally unique, and that makes sense. God is a, he's in a different class than everything else that exists. And you don't, you don't have to understand all the mysteries of the Trinity to become a Christian. You don't. But it is vital to understand the Trinity if you want to understand God's perfection and love. You have to at least understand the basic grasp of it. A few verses that help show this. John 17, 5. Jesus, the night before he died, he was praying. He said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 24 Near the end of his prayer, Jesus says, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am so they'll see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. He goes on and prays that his disciples, that others, they will be able to see that love and experience that love in a greater degree. And what he's implying here and communicating is that before the universe existed, God, and the, God the Son and God the Father the Holy Spirit, they were in perfect relationship. Perfect, perfect unity. There's this glory, this love, this incredible relationship within the Godhead, within God himself. Nehemiah 8.10, there's another hint of this. I love this verse. It says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord. Other verses talk about God's joy. Just said he gave us his command so that he could share his joy with us. When you think about God, is one of the attributes that comes to your mind joy? I don't think it is for most people. Most people, when they think about God, they think God, God's holy, which means he's strict, which means that he's uptight, which means that he's probably a killjoy. 
That's the way most people think about God. And it, it couldn't be further from the truth. It's the exact opposite. He's the source of all joy. Do you understand that? He's the source. Think about the, the person who has the most joy in your life, the person who is, is the most filled with life, the happiest, the, the one that it's just such a blast to be around them. Do you have a person? Uh, is there a person like that in your mind? I hope you can think of someone like that. And what I want you to understand is that person gives you just a little tiny glimpse of how much joy is in the heart of God. How much joy is just inherent to who he is, the, the joy of being in his presence, of being in a, in a relationship with you. You see, the, the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the cosmos, he stepped into his creation not because he needed anything from you. He didn't come to take anything from you. No, he came to give himself to you. He came because he, he wants you to share in his infinite joy and love. That's why understanding the Trinity is, is so important. To understand, God, God didn't create the world. He didn't step into the world out of lack, out of wanting something from you, but because of what he wants to give you. Jesus, he was planned. Jesus was and is divine. And to, to show us just how much he desires to share his love and joy with human beings, God became human himself. God became human himself. This is our third main point. Jesus is human. Galatians 4, 4 again. When the time came to completion, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. The baby, of the man, the baby in the manger was not a, a manifestation of God. It wasn't just God putting on a, a human suit, pretending to be a person, appearing to be a person. No, God the Son added a human nature to his divine nature. The Bible is emphatic that Jesus is fully God, but it's also clear that Jesus is fully man. Hebrews 2, it says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. He had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. Did you know that, that Jesus was and is just as human as you are? He's just as human as you and I. The all-powerful God who spoke the entire universe into existence, he had to learn to speak as a human baby. The one who wrote the DNA for all living, thing, like living things like we talked about earlier, he had to learn to write. And the one who, who sustains all of life, he has no needs. He became dependent on a mother to nurse him, to change his diapers you know, the humility of God to become man, it is staggering. We did a, a deep dive last year on the incarnation, and it's possible uh, to go back and listen to that if you're wondering about the question, how, how, can, how can God be fully, or how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? If you're interested, you can go back and listen to that. But this morning, I want you to consider a different question. And the question is, why did Jesus come as a baby? Why did Jesus come as a, a baby? Theoretically, Jesus could have shown up as a full-grown adult, right? He could have come looking like a 33-year-old man and then just sacrificed himself then. Wouldn't, wouldn't that have been more efficient? Well, there's some reason why that, that 
couldn't work. And I'm going to share just a few of them with you. Like we said earlier, there were dozens and dozens of prophecies about Jesus' earthly life and ministry that he needed to fulfill to prove his identity, to help confirm it to anyone, anyone seeking to, to understand him. Second, the passage in Hebrews makes it clear that, that Jesus had to become just like us so he could be a perfect high priest for us. A perfect high priest who was able to, to fully sympathize with us in our sufferings and our temptations and then to represent us before God. And just this week, I was talking with a very good friend. He's been trying to follow the Lord for a long time. But I, was, I was talking to him and he's just in a very dark place. And he's struggling. He said, I, I don't see that God is good. Like he knows the argument. He knows God's good. He's like, I, it doesn't look like God is good. It doesn't feel like God is good because of the pain that he's going through, because of some of the trials that he's going through. And one of the things that encourages me, thinking about this section, is that Jesus knows what it's like to go through trials. He knows what it's like, the pain that we go through, the difficulty even to, to trust God at times. Think about Jesus heading to the cross. He wasn't, he wasn't looking forward to that. He, under, he understands our pain. He can relate to us better than any other human being can. Jesus can do that. Jesus, he, he knows us. He cares about us. He understands us. And that, that comes in part because he actually lived as a human being. He lived a, a full human life. Now, there's another factor that is closely connected with that. In our study in Romans recently, it's helped prepare us for this. Jesus couldn't just show up and die because we need more than forgiveness. Remember that? We need something more than forgiveness. What do we need? We need justification. We need justification before God. And that's only possible under the law if we're perfectly righteous. The only way you can be justified before God is if you're without any sin, without any selfishness, greed, or pride, not just externally, but internally as well. And I'm confident no one here wants to stand before God based on that criteria. We don't want to be judged by that criteria. And that's why Jesus needed to live a full human life under the law. That's what it says in Galatians. He was born of a woman underneath the law. So he came to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law for us, being like us in every way, yet without sin. He never worshiped an idol. He never took God's name in vain. He never stole, lied, lusted, coveted, or did anything selfishly or out of pride. He perfectly loved God and others at all times. I think there's a, a part of us, we, we love to think about a life like that, don't we? Isn't it, at times, don't you think about, what would it be like if I, if I was just always selfless, if there's this selfless joy in my life and this, this humble courage, a sweet and unbroken love for God and others, just 24-7. Don't, don't you think about that sometimes? What would that be like? It's attractive on one hand to us, but I think it's also haunting on the other because none of us fully love, live up to it. I mean, we all fail every day. We, ne we never fully, perfectly live that out, what we sense in our minds, the way we should live. Only Jesus did. Only Jesus lived that perfect life of righteous love 24-7. The deep down, we, we know that we should live. And because he lived a life of complete righteousness, 
he can give us his perfect righteousness. How does he do that? Well, again, this is what we've been studying in Romans. Because of the cross, Jesus can take our sins, take our punishment, die for them, so he can offer us forgiveness. And most Christians, I think they understand that. So Jesus, he takes our sin. But often I think we fail to realize that he didn't just die to take something from us. He died to give us something. He didn't just take God's wrath. He died to give us Jesus's perfect righteousness. He, he died to give us Jesus's, Jesus's life and standard before God. And as we're going to see next week, God sent his son not just to die for us, not just to to give us a practical righteousness, he also sent his spirit to make us his sons and daughters so that we could experience that righteousness in our life. And this is why the the manger, this is why it matters so much. You see, if Jesus isn't the Messiah planned and promised in the scriptures, then he can't save us. If Jesus isn't fully God, then he can't forgive our sins by his death. He's not in a position to do that. But if Jesus isn't fully human, then he couldn't die as the sacrifice that we need. But if the baby in the manger, if he was the planned and promised Messiah, if Jesus is fully divine and fully human, which he is, then he is the one and only way to be right with God. He's the one and only way to be saved. Not because God's trying to make it hard to get into heaven or because he's trying to be exclusive. Jesus is the only way that our sin issue can be dealt with. He's the only way that humanity's sin can be dealt with before God. Jesus is the only way to to not just escape the hell that we deserve. He's the only way to receive peace with God and his warm welcome, access into the love and the joy of the Godhead. Now, even thinking about Christmas this week, I was thinking nothing, nothing that any of us could get, nothing we could even achieve in life, nothing compares to what's offered to us in Christ, in the gospel, in walking with God. One last reason why Jesus' whole life was so important. If you want to know what God is like as a Christian, if you want to know what he's like, you have to keep a laser focus on Jesus' life. You have to keep reading the Gospels. You have to keep meditating on him. You have to keep focused on Christ's life. And a reason for this, a really vivid example of this happened to me just this week. My wife and I, we had some friends over, and we've been getting to know them. And this gal that we were talking with, she had a really difficult church background, really difficult fam- family background. A lot of things just mess- messed her up through that. And she was talking with me about how there's days where it's hard for her to get out of bed because she's so afraid that she's going to make some mistake and that God is going to just kill her and send her to hell. She's like, every day I'm, like, I'm, a- I'm afraid that God is looking for excuses to send me to hell. And my heart went out to her because I, I remember similar fears when I was younger. And what I, what I shared with her is a verse I've shared many times with you. It's the verse that, that was so helpful in, in giving me a right view of God, kind of getting past that, that image that often people have. It's Hebrews 1, 3, and it says, He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What this is saying is that Jesus shows you exactly what God the Father is like, his character, his nature, his heart towards people. Think about this question. Would you ever come to the conclusion that God wanted to to throw people into hell 
based on the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus and his attitude towards other people. No way. No way. That doesn't mean that God doesn't hate sin. It doesn't mean that, that people won't go to hell. But as you read the scriptures, it is so clear. God's not looking for excuses to throw people into hell. He made the greatest sacrifice possible to save anyone who would look to Christ. He, he did he did what was necessary, all that was necessary. So anyone who wants can be welcomed into his love and his joy through the gift of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. See, this God, the God in the manger, fully God, fully man, this is a God that you can come to for salvation. And not just for salvation, it's a God that you can trust your whole life to, even the most difficult seasons, because he can relate. He understands and the cross of Christ, it proves that God can take the worst things that happen in life, the worst things that happen to you, and he can bring good out of it. He just, he's not just able to. He promises that he will. To close, a couple applications. First, I'd encourage you, meditate on Christ's character and identity. Meditate on Christ's character and identity. We often talk about how important it is to focus on the cross, and it is. It is so important. But if you, if you think, just thank God for what he's done, and you don't regularly meditate on who God is, it actually it minimizes the impact that has on our soul when we forget that God is eternal, when we forget how powerful he is, how sovereign he is, his triune joy. The more we see who he is clearly, the more incredible it is that he would go to the cross for us. So meditate on, on Christ's character and his identity this season. And then second, look to make the most of every opportunity. Look to make the most of every opportunity. Praise God that, that he doesn't need us. That God, he's not dependent on us for, for saving, saving others. But at the same time, God, he wants us to, to get to know him better as we represent him in this world, as we become more like him. And he allows us to be a part of pointing others towards him. And so I'd, I'd encourage you this season, instead of getting anxious about plans that you have, it's good to plan. It's actually important to plan. But instead of getting anxious when things don't go exactly the way we want, just remember God is in control. And when things don't go the way we want, he actually has a better plan for how you can love your family, love the people in your life than you do on your own. So think about how, how can I serve and love my neighbors, my friends, my family especially. Pray for opportunities to, to talk to people about Christ, to have spiritual conversations with Christ. If you're parents, you know, specifically, most important, have conversations with your kids. Make sure they understand what, what's the real importance of Christmas. But why do we celebrate Christmas? For, but for all of us, I'm, I'm praying that God would open up this season, opportunities for us to have spiritual conversations, to ask questions, even as simple as, hey, what do you, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you think there's anything more to kind of Christmas than just like the traditional story? To, to ask people what, what they think is necessary to to get into heaven or if they believe in life after. Just ask a question and see where God takes it. Whether it's with a neighbor or a classmate, friend or student, I'm praying that God would give us opportunities to, to point them to the hope that we have. Christ is a central figure in history and because of what we've done, we can have a relationship with him. We can have joy, joy in, in following him and we can actually be excited for his return. <laughs> we can be excited about that. And so we wanna enjoy, enjoy the Lord I'm going to walk with him this holiday season and pray that God would use us to love and, and point others to him. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. 
We thank you for who you are. God, you are more impressive. You are bigger and more powerful than any of us have, have fully comprehended or will be able to for all of eternity. So God, we ask you to, to open up the eyes of our hearts just to have a, a clear vision of who you are. And then we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the cross. We thank you that, that as great and, and exalted as you are, that you would humble yourself to come and save us. And I pray, God, that, that we would just have a greater, greater gratitude towards you, God, a, a greater sense of your presence in our lives this holiday season. Lord, help us with our plans, not to put our hope in those plans, but help us to have our hope in you and to be walking with you and, and just filled up with your love. So even as plans change, God, that we can just overflow with the love that you have, have shown us to those in our lives. So God, we need your help. We thank you that you long to give it. And so we commit these things to you in your great name. Amen. Amen.